This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to Robert Kerbeck. Robert is the founder of the Malibu Writer Circle and a three-time Pushcart Prize nominee. His essays and short stories have been featured in numerous magazines and literary journals, including narratively, Los Angeles Magazine and Shondaland. One of his stories was adapted into the award-winning film Reconnected, which has appeared at film festivals worldwide. A lifetime member of the Actors Studio, Robert has worked extensively in theater, film, and television, appearing in lead roles in major shows and earning several awards. He joins me from Malibu, California today to talk about his career and his new memoir, Ruse, Lying the American Dream, From Hollywood to Wall Street, which provides a look into his career as a corporate spy. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Robert. Hey, Mike. Nice to meet you. And, and what a great intro. Thank you. You, you, you make me look good. I know. Well, you know, I'd like to say that I, I made that all up, but uh, I didn't because it was provided to me by <laughs> by your publicist. But um, yeah. uh, Robert, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody as we begin these conversations, which is where does your story as an author begin? Uh, you know, I think my story begins in college. Um, and um, my freshman year, I went to the school Drexel, which is in Philadelphia. Back in the day when I went there, it was really an engineering school and a business school. And I had this professor who was moonlighting there. He taught at the University of Pennsylvania, which was across the street. And uh, I wrote an essay in this class, you know, freshman English. Everybody had to take freshman English. And he said, what the hell are you doing at this school? And uh, I'd been wondering the same thing. And that man, that teacher changed my life because I had been unhappy at the school. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And because of his encouragement and then his, um, uh, he, he did more than encourage me. He actually wrote a letter of recommendation and I ended up transferring to Penn where I became an English major, started doing theater. And that took me on this crazy journey which now after many, many different careers has pivoted back to writing books, which is where I started, you know, uh, you know, many years ago. So well, I, I think I think what I love about that story is the idea that, you know, it, it, it's never too late to to, you know, course correct. Uh, so I course corrected as a young person then. And now I've course corrected later in life after my career as a corporate spy blew up. And we'll talk about that and came back to writing. So, you know, for all your listeners, Man, do what you want to do. It's never too late to do it. 
So we, we owe so much to our teachers. Um, you know, cause I've had so many people say, I mean, you, you had a college professor who, you know, had this impact in your life. I have people go back as far as like first and second grade who mm -hmm. say, you know, I, you know, Mrs. So-and-so in the third grade, you know, saw something in me and it was just that little bit of encouragement that really set them on a path, you know, later off in life that, um, and they, now they make careers as writers and journalists and stuff like that. But, um, where, where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in the Philadelphia area and, you know, the Kerbeck name uh, is very well known in the Philadelphia area in the automobile business. My great grandfather uh, sold horse carriages before automobiles were invented. Uh, my grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. Uh, but in college, I fell in love with acting, really wanted to go move to New York to try my hand, but I didn't know anybody that had been an actor. It was too scary. So when I graduated, I went to work for my father in the car business and just didn't feel right for me, kind of the trickery of sales, car sales. It just didn't feel right, which, of course, is kind of ironic <laughs> that I stumble into a career as a corporate spy, which ended up being far more dishonest than car sales. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I bought one or two used cars in my life, so uh, <laughs> we could we could question that. But um, you know, but but before before getting into you know the the corporate um, spy gig, um, how are you making a living? Uh, well, um, I think that was the thing. You know, I was just selling cars at my dad's dealership, and then when I left to go into theater, you know, uh, your listeners know, art, you know, making money in any art form is difficult. You know, I'm sure making money in podcasting is difficult, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm I'm still trying to figure out if it's possible. Right, exactly. You know, it's, you know, we do these things that we love, but they're not usually going to support us. So I, when I moved to New York, I needed a survival job. I was just, I was broke and I didn't have the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night kind of guy. I only knew one person in New York City and he had this strange job, which he was very mysterious about. Um, and uh, I said to him, dude, come on, help me out. I'm broke. I need a job. What's this job, you know, that you can't talk about. And, um, and he eventually got me an interview with this woman who ran this firm and I went to interview. She lived on the Upper East Side. Uh, and again, your listeners may know the Upper East Side is the ritziest area of Manhattan, the wealthiest area of Manhattan. I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a cave with two other guys. I go to this doorman building, take the elevator up to the penthouse. This woman opens the door. I seem to remember she had a martini and a cigarette, but that might just be the writer in me imagining things a little bit, a little bit more dramatically. But uh, she invited me in, and, and one thing for sure, it was the nicest apartment I'd ever been into. Uh, it was pristine, gorgeous. And so I knew whatever she was doing, it was lucrative. Um, and she interviews me. Uh, she doesn't ask me a thing about my skills. She doesn't ask to see my resume. She sends me on my way. My buddy calls me and says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. So you, your your wheels must have been turning, being like, well, what what the heck did I just get hired to do? Because it doesn't yeah. sound like there was a lot of detail or a written job description. None, nothing. No, they they you know they weren't advertising for corporate spies in the you know the back then in the yellow pages, you know, uh, or today on the internet. You know, even though there's still plenty of corporate spies out there, um, it's not something you really advertise. And so the next day, I was sent for training. Now I go out to Brooklyn. And this is back in the day, kind of early 90s crack epidemic is still, you know, a big issue. So Brooklyn is not the, you know, the area with hipsters with beards and coffee shops that it is today, right? It was rough and dangerous. 
and I go to this building, walk, take the fourth floor, walk up to this apartment, knock on the door. This beautiful young woman opens it. She's got a bit of an Irish accent. She says, come on in, you'll work in my bedroom. And now I'm really going like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? What is going on? Uh, I was single, so I was like, well, hey, you know, <laughs> let's see what happens here. And uh, she takes me into her bedroom. There's a futon on the ground. There's a desk. She says, sits me down at the desk, and she begins to explain that what we do is we use our acting talents. Uh, we create personalities, voices, personas, accents to call and trick people at major corporations into revealing secrets and private information that they should never, ever tell us. And that was my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. Yeah, so this is this is like the days before like phishing was a thing, right? The day before right. like, you know, now now I'm sure, you know, a lot of it is done through sort of cyber cyber webs or something like that. But right. when, when you realize that this is what you got into was, were, were you excited? Were you nervous? Like what was the, what, you know, what did, what, what, what light bulb went off in your head? Yeah, you know, uh, I was, of course, you know, kind of very confused and dumbfounded. And um, I was also concerned about whether it was legal. Um, you know, I, I kind of at the time rationalized it in that we were calling uh, back then, for the most part, Wall Street firms, major Wall Street firms, and we were getting information from them. And I kind of rationalized it like, well, you know, you know, boohoo for Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, like they're making billions of dollars you know, what does it matter if I get a little information from one of these firms and it's getting sold to another firm? A lot of the information we were getting, because again, this is the year before LinkedIn. So a lot of the information we were getting was who worked at firms and who were the best people at those firms, who were the rock stars. And so I rationalized that, well, you know, these people are getting calls, you know, we're getting these, these organizational charts. And now these people are getting calls from other firms being offered jobs, getting paid more money. And that was kind of how I rationalized, um, you know, the, the lying and deception that we were using to get the information. Right. So it's almost like a victimless crime in your mind, right? I mean, it's, you know, who, who's getting hurt? These people who are getting these phone calls, they might be getting better jobs, you know. Um, and it's, it's not like you're involved in insider trading, although I don't want to make that assumption, but it's not like, you know, you're, you're Michael, uh, you know, you're buying Endicott Steel and trying to short something or <laughs> trying right. to move yeah. markets. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, that's a really astute point you just made is that there were times where we did learn information about deals that were about to go down, mergers, all kinds of crazy stuff. And that was a line we drew. I knew that early on. I'm like, you know, this, the, you know, the kind of the rusing stuff that we were doing was definitely borderline, but insider trading was straight up illegal. And I also knew that, you know, I mean, remember, even Martha Stewart went to jail for insider trading. So bottom line, it doesn't matter who you are. If you insider trade and you get caught, you're going to go to jail. And right. I did not I did not want that. So, yeah, so that was a line that we drew. Um, I also, you know, wasn't going to use my rusing in my personal life. You know, it was kind of like a superpower that I could call and do these accents and create these personalities and stories, which you know, I call ruses. Um, I wasn't going to use that in my personal life for obvious reasons. You know, I wanted to be a, a good person, you know, a, a, an ethical person with the exception of this crazy job.
Yeah. I mean, you could have become like a master pickup artist or something like that with that. You know what I mean? Like there are, there are whole books about, you know, I think one of them was called the game. I remember, you know, I can't remember the author's name, but he had a whole thing going about, about using, you know, ruses to, to kind of pick up women. But, um, you know, when I think of corporate spies, I mean, I spent a fair amount of time in corporate America working for like MasterCard, Unilever, you know, I think of people dumpster diving, you know, I think of like, you know, people like, you know, getting invited to focus groups that they're not supposed to be in. Um, but, but what, you know, what's, what's an example of a ruse that you might've done as a corporate spy? Yeah. So, so um, we, in the beginning, we did go out sometimes in person and we did go to cocktail parties. We did go to bars. We did, did go to conferences, but what we learned very quickly was we actually got far more information and, and usually it was easier to obtain over the telephone. We were using the anonymity of the telephone to our advantage, right? And remember, these corporations, even back in the day, are huge. They have offices all over the world, you know? So I could be, you know, oh, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt. We have the European Union regulators here, and we need a little information from the states, right? And so all of a sudden, the guy on the other end of the phone is going, oh, my God, hey, I got, I got somebody in the uh, Frankfurt. Oh, hey, Gerhard, hey, wow, hey, great to meet you, man. How, what's going on over, you know? And so you create this friendship, you know, I call them telephone buddies. And so people were willing to tell us anything and everything, even if many times it made no sense why somebody in Germany was calling for this information. And that was the crazy thing about the job. The more outlandish the ruse, right? The more believable we we became. So for example, in that scenario, I would be calling from the compliance department. You know, this is Gerhardt in the compliance department, you know? And and they're like, oh, we, 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 you know, we're meeting with the European Union. We're, you know, we're in Brussels, we're in trouble. There's a crisis, help me out, you know? And, and so we get some information. Well, all of a sudden I'm asking all kinds of stuff about the states. And every once in a while, somebody would go, wait, uh, wait a second, you're in Brussels and you say you need it, but, but why do you need all this information and, in, you know, uh, that's what the European Union requires. You know, when they say jump, we say how high. And so we would utilize things like compliance, um, you know, human resources. Um, we would use these things um, to kind of, um, you know, almost like a, a bit of a cudgel to basically convince people that they had to help us, that it was an emergency. And, you know, all your listeners, when they get those, those emails of today, those texts of today, phishing, there's always an element of urgency, right? There's always an emergency. If you don't do this right now, you're going to lose your money. If you don't do this right now, you're, the hack is going to wipe your, you know, and that's what we were also utilizing. We were utilizing that this is an emergency. We're on the same team. You're a good corporate teammate. Help me out. And I'm here to tell you 99% of the time people did. People did. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to, you know, to deny a, a German, you know, with a sense of urgency. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. And it's funny because I've every once in a while, you know, I have a lot of people and German people say your accent's really good. And then every once in a while I have somebody say my accent is bad. Do you know how many times people said nine to Gerhardt and turned me down for information? Zero. Never. Because what are the odds that someone's calling you from, you know, and of course I would do my homework. I would I would know the name of somebody in the in the office in Germany, whether it was Berlin or Frankfurt, I would know 
what their real name was, because we were impersonating real people, which is where kind of the, the, the legality, the dicey part comes in. Um, so they would, even if they looked you up on the internal system, they would see, well, there is a Gerhardt in the Frankfurt office. And, you know, and maybe he wasn't in compliance. Maybe he was in, and they go, well, you know, on the directory, it says you're in marketing. And, uh, and then I would say, you know, yeah, heads of marketing for also compliance, right? We, you know, and they go, oh, okay, sure, no problem, right? Um, and so, yeah, nobody's thinking that someone is going to put on a German accent to call and get information. Right, right. And if you ended with, and I'm going to pump you up, it's probably, you know, not, <laughs> then you're just, you're just, you know. I'll be back. Yeah, I'll be back. <laughs> get to the chopper. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we could spend the whole podcast just just doing, riffing on Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, oh, crazy Austrian accent. I know, and I I just I do terrible accents, but I my accents are like, you know, other people imitating other people. You know, it's like Kevin Nealon doing Dana Carvey doing Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's <laughs> <laughs> multiple That's, layers. Right, right. Um. So you know what? So so how how long are you in this in this gig for? You know. So um. You know, we start, you know, in the 90s and we're doing this gig and it's just a survival job. You know, it, it's pretty funny when I think about it now, we were getting paid $8 an hour, right? So we're getting paid $8 an hour. And at one point we met with an attorney because, you know, we were young people. We were nervous about, you know, boy, are we going to get in trouble for this? And and the attorney said, well, uh, uh, it's, what you're doing is in the gray, the dark gray. Um, and he said, look, I can't tell you that, you know, you, you couldn't get arrested. I can, can't tell you, you know, there's no case law on this type of corporate spying, you know. Um, so we were nervous, but we continued, you know, we, you know, we just tried to kind of be sensitive and, um, you know, kind of our, our big thing is when, when I would call you and try to get information from you, I would do it in a way that you never even knew you had been rude. You would never even know that I had just hacked you, right? And you'd get off the call and you go, ah, man, I just had the greatest call with a guy in our German, you know, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and that's how most of our calls went because we were, we were good at our job. Um, and so for a long time, uh, I was doing the job, getting paid $8 an hour. And I wasn't too bummed out about that because I was beginning to work as an actor. And, and you know, one of the things in my book, Ruse, is it's kind of two books. It's um, obviously corporate spying. Um, but it also details my acting career and these crazy encounters I had with uh, dating J-Lo, um, working with O.J. Simpson the week before he became America's most inf infamous murderer, um, getting hit on by Kevin Spacey, drinking with Paul Newman, peeing next to Al Pacino. You know, like all of these insane stories are part of the book because I was working as an actor, right? And I kept thinking, this job's going to go away. This job's going to go away. I'm not going to need it. I'm making money as an actor. And then the opposite happened. I booked a whole bunch of pilots um, and not one of them got picked up to go to series. And then all of a sudden I was in my early 30s and in Hollywood, that means you're 62. Um, and all of a sudden my career for the first time waned. And that was the moment where I kind of went deeper into the spying. Um, and this is the run up to the crash of 2008 where everything was go, go, go. And our information um, was never more valuable. And my income went from getting $8 an hour to in the years before the crash, I was making over $2 million a year. Holy shit. Yeah. So at, at, so at, what, so at some point you have a negotiation with the woman on the Upper East Side. And it, what do you say? I, I, I got to make more or like what, what was, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, yeah. we, we, me and my buddy Pax, the guy that got me the job, we went in one year uh, and we, you know, we went in together for a, a raise and uh, she was furious that we came in together. Furious as if we were trying to start a corporate spying union or something, right? And uh, she was so angry and she said, you know what, I'm so angry. I don't even want to give you a raise, but I'm going to give you $1 an hour because I'm, I'm a good person, you know, or something like that. And she literally raised this to $9 an hour. And that was when I realized she was never going to pay us what we were worth. We were making her, you know, oodles and oodles of money. Um, and, um, and in the book, I detail how people started to find me and people started to hear about my work. And all of a sudden, corporations were contacting me directly. And, that, and then at a certain point, I stopped working for her and went out on my own. And then I eventually created my own firm and trained spies, uh, some of whom are still spying today. Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 that's what happened. Got it, got it. See, because I was thinking, you know, if you're talking about that dark gray area, you know, at the time, you know, if law enforcement was going to come after somebody, I mean, you would just be a way to get to the woman on the Upper East Side, I imagine. Like, it's, it's not like they're going to be coming after you specifically. Um, but did you feel nervous when when you were now at the head of the head of the spear, I guess? Yeah. And, and we had. And, and again, you know, I detail this in the book. At one point, Pax and I were hunted by nearly every major authority that there is. The FBI, the Secret Service, the U.S. Marshals. And what had happened was at the time they were searching for this guy that was the world's most famous hacker. And they thought this guy was trying to shut down the internet, which at the time was just becoming commercially accessible and viable. And somehow they stumbled on our path because we were calling in and, and you know, getting information on um, telephone companies. And he was hacking into those same telephone companies. So they were recording all their calls. They were doing all this stuff. So all of a sudden we called in getting information about their plans or their employees or whatever. We weren't trying to shut their systems down. But all of a sudden, because they couldn't find this hacker guy, they came after us. And that was the moment where it got really real very, very quickly, where all of a sudden we were like, oh, my God, have we completely misjudged? I mean, like I said, we knew it was in the gray, but when the U.S. Marshals and the Secret Service are knocking at your door and leaving messages to come outside, uh, it, you know, it, it was pretty frightening. Yeah, it was pretty frightening. Yeah. So so um, I, 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 we, I don't want to give away the ending. I, I don't think we should give away the ending of the book. But I mean, are you out of it now? Is this is this in the yeah. rearview mirror for you? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I uh, needed to wait to write the book for the statute of limitations to run out on any potential crimes. Um, and that 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 has run out now, and I've been out of it long enough now that I can tell kind of all the stories. Um, in the book, I do change the names of the corporations because um, even though the stories are all true and the book is all true, um, and you know my publisher kind of made me prove a lot of that stuff, and I showed them documents and all kinds of emails, so they they knew the book was true. But at the end of the day, these firms have armies of attorneys on staff. And they could just sue me just to be difficult and put me through the ringer. And I just didn't want to, you know, basically, you know, go broke trying to prove that the book that I wrote was accurate. And then by the time they were like, okay, well, maybe it is. I just spent, you know, $250,000 in legal fees. Yeah. Yeah. They, I always like to say, you know, these big corporations have a lot more money than, uh, <laughs> than, yeah. than, you know, most people do. And they, you know, if they, if they, 
if they want something, they'll they'll try and get it. But um, what about the statute of limitations on uh, dating J Lo? Are those up? Ah. <laughs> well, and was she see? Well, she's still a fly girl at the time you were dating her. She was, yeah, exactly. That's how long ago it was. And yeah. I'm here to tell you, you know, I can tell you some stories about celebrities that were awful and terrible. J Lo was not one of them. Um, she was uh, beautiful. I mean, gorgeous. But more than beautiful and gorgeous, she was radiant. And, you know, looking back on it now, uh, it's pretty easy to see why she became such a, a, a you know, huge star, not only in acting, but in, in, in singing and dancing, too. Right. Um, so um, she was super nice, super kind. We went on a, a blind date to a Dodgers game. Uh, momentarily, I thought that she was into me, um, but she was really just into baseball. Uh, which, of course, later became quite ironic when she dated, uh, you know, A-Rod for all those years. Yeah. Um, she was she like I said, I thought she was into me. It was just baseball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and I have to only because you brought it up. I mean, uh, I'll admit it. Um, I do suffer from stage fright sometimes at the urinal. What's it like peeing next to Al Pacino? Oh, my God. Well, the, the funny thing was, is I was about to go on stage. So I'm in the theater, I'm performing lead in a two character play. I'm super nervous. I think it was opening night. I'm super nervous. I run downstairs, it was a small theater. So the, the bathrooms were used by the actors and by the, the uh, audience. And of course the play's about to start. I tell the stage manager, hold the curtain. Play's about to start. So everybody's in their seats. So I run down the stairs, there's nobody in the lobby. I run in the urinal, I go into the urinal and in the urinal next to me is Al Pacino, which not only means that I got a pee next to the Godfather, but it also means he's come to see the play that I'm in. Yeah. And that freaked me out. Uh, clearly, I had, uh, you know, a urinal stage fright. I was unable to pee, uh, ran back, <laughs> did the whole play, having to, pee, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was a pretty funny moment. Right. He's like, you're out of order. <laughs> you're out of order. Oh, boy. Um so, you know, thinking about um, your career after after the spy gig, right? Um, what what do you what do you look back on and say, gosh, I'm so glad I did X or I, I really wish I could do Y? Like what you know, when you when you look back on everything, um, are there regrets? Well, look, you know, I, I, I say I'm not proud of what I did, and I certainly would not recommend a career in corporate spying to any of your listeners, though I will tell you there's plenty of work. So if any of your listeners are looking to pivot to a lucrative new career, go to my website, robertkerbeck.com, email me, I'll hook you up. <laughs> there you go. Corporations are dying for spies. You know, one of the biggest surprises about writing this book was how many emails I got from corporations after I wrote the book saying, hey, Robert, we read your book. We're looking for a spy. You know, can you do some work for us? And, and I have to write back. I'm like, don't you realize that I've outed myself as a spy? Like, I wouldn't be a very smart spy if I outed myself and then went back into spying. Like, I, I put a target on my back, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think in terms of your, your, your first question, you know, after the crash of 2008, I took a job in corporate America because, you know, I had a mortgage, I had bills to pay. There was no, nobody was paying for corporate spying because corporations were just trying not to go under, right? They weren't spying on their competitor because they were, everybody was just trying in survival mode. And, um, I took a job in corporate America. I worked for a major executive recruiting firm, a headhunting firm out of Hong Kong. 
And uh, what was shocking to me in that experience was that here I am lying on the phone, here I am, you know, rusing people, and the lying done in corporate America face to face was far worse, in my humble opinion, than the lying that I'd been doing on the phone. So here were people that I thought we were friends, or at least we were, you know, teammates, and people were constantly stabbing you in the back, lying to you. And so um, I do hope some of your listeners will, will, will buy a copy of Ruse, and if they're reading Ruse and they're seeing me trick people and they're getting mad at me, don't worry, hang in there a couple more pages because pretty soon I'm going to be the victim of all the rusing. I'm going to be the sucker. And um, I definitely get my comeuppance in the book. And um, when the job blew up, uh, they fired me. They told me they were going to pay me all these bonuses. They never paid me 10 cents. Um, I was so uh, sad that I sat down one day and I wrote a suicide note, except it wasn't me writing uh, as Robert writing the suicide note, it was this character that came through me, even though the, 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 the depression was completely real. And so I wrote this thing and, and it turned into this short story and I showed it to an actor friend and he said, this is really good, you know, you should write a book. And so I wrote a book with this character in it. And I'm here to tell you that the book was terrible, but, <laughs> but there was something about it that was completely true. There was something about the character, the situation that was fun, that was poignant, but the writing was rough. And so I resolved to uh, improve my prose and I started going to writing conferences. I started the Malibu Writer Circle, which is a writing group. And that's the thing that I'm most proud of, like looking back is that, you know, I took that adversity and turned it around and now I'm writing, um, you know, I've, got, I've written two books. Uh, my first book, Malibu Burning, won a number of uh, national and international book awards. Um, Ruse is in development for a TV series. Um, I've had, you know, many, many articles published in magazines, short stories in magazines. I've written plays that have been produced in New York, screenplays. Um, and all of that came out of the desperation of a suicide note, even wow. if it was a fictional suicide note. You know what what a great turnaround that is right and that's i think for all the listeners is that you can turn around your life right now today and do anything you want to do within reason right you, you maybe you're not going to play in the nba but you could get a job working in the nba right you could get a job writing about the nba you know you could you know you could get pretty close to your love without maybe it, it being spot on um and so that's something that i hope people take away from reading ruse and, you know, one thing that you didn't mention in response to my terrible question, because I, I asked three different questions in the same breath, uh, was, <laughs> was expressing any regret not making it in the automobile business. Ah, no, that's a great question. You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, I think about that now because my Eagles, I'm you know, from Philadelphia, my Eagles are six and oh, right. And so I'm like, well, you know what, if I if I was still part of the Kerbeck uh, car business, I'd have season tickets to the Eagles and, you know, I'd be going to all those games. So that would be, the I guess, the only regret that I would have. But uh, no, you know, the car business wasn't for me. Uh, I really wanted to pursue uh, art, um, you know, and for, you know, obviously for many years it was acting um, and now it's writing. And I'm yeah. so glad. Um, and, you know, it the acting, you know, I started acting in New York, but then I moved to L.A., and now I live in Malibu, which, uh, you know, is not, you know, not such a shabby place to live. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it worked out. It all worked out. What's the uh, what's the poster right behind your head? Oh, that's a poster for Reconnected, which okay. was um, uh, it was a short story that I wrote. 
And then this woman reached out. Uh, she read the short story and she turned out she was a director in Hollywood. And she said, hey, can I make a movie out of it? And I said, sure. And I thought it was like Hollywood BS. It was such a, you know, like out of the blue, you know. Um, and so, but she, you know, we co-wrote the screenplay and she got, you know, everything together and we're getting ready to do casting. And I said, hey, uh, my kid is into acting and there's a part of it, the, the reconnected is about a father and a son. And I said, you know, could my, you know, I based the character on my son. Could he read for the part and reconnect it? She said, sure. And so he read and she said, I, I think he'd be fantastic. But the only condition I have is that if your son plays this part in the movie, you have to play the father. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I hadn't acted in over 10 years and I didn't want to ruin my own movie, you know? And I said, no, 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 no. But she was insistent and my child was insistent. And so I ended up acting in the movie and it was an incredible experience to act with your, your own kid. Um, frustrating at times because, uh, you know, wouldn't listen to a word I said, but anyway. Uh, but we ended up, we had a really great little movie. We had Barbara Bain. Um, some people may remember the original Mission Impossible uh, show. Barbara played Cinnamon. I forget what Cinnamon's last name was, but she was the female lead. And she won the, I didn't know this until I worked with Barbara, she won the Emmy Award three years in a row in the late 60s, which I think wasn't replicated until maybe Ju uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus did it for uh, maybe Veep. Um, you know, so she, you know, Barbara Bain, incredible actress. Um, and it was just an amazing experience. Well, I always like to end with a few questions that I ask everybody, um, starting off with, uh, and these are all designed, you know, I, you said you're a member, lifetime member of the Actors Studio. Mm. James James Lipton had those questions, right, that he always yes. asked at the end. This is the podcast version of it. So uh, when you were growing up, Robert, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Well, you know, Batman, I guess, Star Trek, you know, uh, I was honored. Uh, I got to be on Star Trek. Uh, I did an episode of Deep Space Nine. And so that was like a childhood dream, like, wow, you know, Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and all of those. And here I am on, you know, a later version. Uh, so that was a really cool thing. So I think those would be the two shows uh, that, that, you know, made the most impact on me as a little kid. I, I, I love that original series. Um, my brother and I would watch it. I mean, you know, in, in replays, but um, yeah. it was so good. But was Deep Space Nine, was that the one with Scott Bakula? Which one was who was the the, the captain uh, on Deep Space Nine? Avery Brooks. Avery okay. Brooks was the captain on that one. And uh, I don't know that I was, a you know, I mean, I like Deep Space Nine. Um, I know, you know, I think I like Next Generation more yeah. than Deep Space Nine. But um, but it's still, you know, there's some great episodes. All right. And then how about music? What did you listen to growing up? Uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to be really honest um, because I was a huge fan of early Genesis. So Peter Gabriel era Genesis. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I still go back to that music. I listen to that music. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Peter Gabriel. Um, you know, not so much of later Genesis. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that's the that was that was my band, even though they were kind of even before my time, I got turned on to them after Peter Gabriel was long out had gone from the band. Um, but I still, I just think that the, the music they made was really, really uh, special music. Oh, it was much more progressive, you know, in the in the seventies than it was, you know, than what it became in the eighties. You know, right, when it right, became, right. You know, very poppy. Um, right. And and something I always I love to say because you know people are like, oh, Genesis, you know, whatever. And I say, name me because there are only two of them. Name me. There are two bands that after the band broke up 
two members went on to have number one solo records. Name the two bands. The first, well, I mean, you're going to get them because the first one is easy and the second one we're talking about, right? Right, right. Oh, boy. Um, the Eagles? No. Hmm. Go bigger oh, than the Eagles. Bigger than the Eagles. Yeah. Uh, biggest band ever. Biggest band ever. Ro not Rolling Stones. Uh, Go bigger. Bigger than the Rolling Stones. Not the Who. Not the bigger than the Who and the Rolling Stones. You're, you're right there. Bigger than the Who and the Rolling Stones. You ready? Um, uh, the slaughtered gummy bears, which was a, <laughs> which was a band I made up in high school. But go ahead, the Beatles. Oh shit! Yeah, of course, right. How did you know? If you gave me one more minute, Robert, <laughs> one well, more look, minute, right? So the Beatles, obviously, I think all three members had number one records: Paul, uh, John, and George. I mean, hell, Ringo. No, I don't think Ringo. Anyway, but yeah, so Genesis and the Beatles are the only bands that after they broke up, so Phil Collins had a number one record and Peter Gabriel had a number one record. And that's kind of, you know, when people kind of are like, oh, Genesis, well, and I go, well, they're up right up there with the Beatles in terms of the talent that was in that group. Right. And I guess we're not counting any of those Kiss solo records from the 70s. When, you know, <laughs> when, when Ace Frehley did, you know, back in the New York groove or anything like that. Uh, um, yeah, I don't think so. For uh, just to give my wife credit, she she is screaming. She's like, I got it. I got it. So she was apparently sitting at our kitchen table saying that that she got the nice work. Out. Nice work. We'll, we'll give Nicole that one. Um, what did you learn about yourself during the writing process for Ruse? Um, man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think what I learned is um, what a ride. You know, like what a crazy ride I had, you know, um, you know, I mean, there were just these, you know, like, like, what are the odds you work with OJ Simpson on this exercise video and live to tell about he, it, Sorry, live to tell about it the week before, you know, he murders these two people, then the exercise video is subpoenaed in his trial. Um, and then later on, I mean, OJ never left my life, you know, like five years ago, they did a series on FX. And they recreated the exercise video in the TV series, which means an actor was hired to play me in the exercise video. Now, wait a minute, because we didn't get into how you worked with O.J. Simpson. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What was the, was, it wasn't like sweating to the oldies, right? Or, or bleeding to the oldies in O.J.'s case. Yeah, you know, it was, you know, my manager called me up one day and he said, hey, you know, they're, they're doing this uh, uh, video, uh, you know, do you want to be in this video? And I said, his name, his name was Bob. I said, Bob, no, I said, I cannot dance. I'm the worst dancer. He's like, no, 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 it's not. It's not like a video dancing video. It's an exercise video. I'm like, I don't think so. He goes, come on, it's for OJ Simpson. I said, OJ Simpson. Oh, I'm in. And so I show up to do this. And, you know, he said, you're going to just do push-ups and calisthenics. It's an exercise video for guys. And I show up first day and there's a dance floor. And there's this guy who's referred to as the choreographer. And sure enough, you know, and there were a couple of women there and, he, and, he, and the choreographer says, OK, we're going to do this, that, you know, and everybody gets it on the first take. And I'm so bad. The guy comes over and I mean, he's guaranteed firing me. He's like, what the hell? Like, how did you even get hired? And OJ says, hey, 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 no, 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 no. Rob's making me look good. Rob stays. And so because OJ didn't because, you know, OJ didn't, you know, it's like I was so bad. I was making OJ look good. Right. And so somehow that bonded us and I became his best friend on the set. And, you know, there are all these stories in the book about that, that time with OJ and the things that I witnessed, which are be like, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up what I saw him do.
Yeah. Um, and, um, and then of course, you know, a week later, whatever it was, 10 days later, he's driving down the 405 and, and, you know, you know, you know, and anyway, so, uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that's what I got out of writing the book was looking back on all of these crazy experiences. And, you know, even though I didn't make it as an actor per se, I mean, I have a pension from the screen actors guild. That's pretty cool. I mean, that, be like saying you have a pension for major league baseball like you know you know you, yeah i was in the majors that's for sure you know and maybe i was the 24th the 25th guy on the team but that's still a pretty good baseball player yeah. um so um but i think that's the thing that i hope people get out of the book is i wrote it during covid um so i wanted to write something that was fun um a lot of people say it reads like a spy novel and i want i really wanted that i wanted it to be a page turner i wanted it to be something that people um, laughed at too, you know, had some, you know, there's some, you know, like I said, the stuff with OJ, some of it is disturbing, but some of it's also pretty, pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, what was it like seeing him run through those airports? He's pretty fast, that dude. And that was the thing that they subpoenaed the thing because the, in, in his trial, because he was claiming he was so infirm that there was no way he could have murdered one person, let alone two people. And, you know, I'm here to tell you, I was in the best shape of my life. I was six foot one, 190 pounds of muscle. And OJ, you know, standing next to him, I was like a twig next to an oak, you know? I mean, he could have freaking murdered me in a heartbeat. Um, so um, it was kind of, that was kind of fascinating how that, that um, video became such a, a big part of his trial. Right. Well, you mentioned kind of writing this book during the pandemic. Um, obviously, it's a very personal book. It's very revealing. Was it in any way therapeutic for you to write this book? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, you know, my father's a big part of the book. You know, he's kind of the heart of the book because, you know, here I am. I leave the car business because I'm like, ah, I, I don't like this dishonesty. And then, you know, when I tell him that I'm a corporate spy, you know, he was, you know, obviously not very happy about it and very concerned and very worried. And, you know, so he's kind of the heart of the book and, and my father is, you know, not with, with us anymore. And so, you know, writing about my father and kind of bringing him back to life was really cool. And, and you know, I, I, I don't want to get too far down the road, but, you know, Ruse is very far down the line in terms of a development for a TV series. And my father, who's a big part of the book, but in the TV series, he's one of the leads. You know, which is really cool because it's like my father is, you know, he's like going to, you know, be like, you know, and I'm going to, you know, make sure they hire an actor that resembles my father. And so that that's kind of something that really uh, has has meant a lot to me. All right. I got two more questions. I'm going to let you go. Uh, one is more serious than the other. I'm going to I'm going to lead with the less serious question. What was it like, Robert, killing George Clooney? Ah, yeah, that was cool because. So I get brought on the show Sisters uh, because George had a recurring part and I'm brought on there to blow him up, which I did quite successfully. Um, and so he's dead, but his ghost comes back in the episode and is trying to haunt me and get me, you know, so that I'm caught for his murder. Um, and so I got to spend a lot of time with George on the set. And um, he was explaining to me that the reason I was killing him was that he was about to do this new series which no one has ever heard of called ER. And um, he was talking about, and he took me to the ER set when this is all in the book. And he took me to the set and he was bemoaning how bad his career was. Um, he had done six pilots. Uh, earlier I said, I did four, they didn't get picked up. He had done six, none of them had been picked up. 
So this was his seventh. And he was basically saying whatever show he got hired in, he was the kiss of death. It never made it. It never went anywhere. He was no kid. Um, and, you know, he was like going on and on. And, and, you know, and this was during our lunch break and we didn't get a lot of time for lunch. And I'm in my head, I'm like, dude, you know, stop your freaking belly aching. I'm hungry. I got to go over to the commissary and get some food, you know, <laughs> you know. And meanwhile, George Clooney is boo hoo, my career, boo hoo, I'm getting old, boo, you know, which of course is pretty hilarious knowing what happened to Mr. Clooney. Sure. I mean, he did do the facts of life. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Um, so he did have that under his belt. But, but I think, um, wasn't he? But I think he was recurring on that. I don't. Oh, yeah. Think, yeah. He was recurring. It was not. Yeah. Like, yeah. Permanent, yeah. Yeah. He That's wasn't, right. you know, and the recurring actors just, you know, your audience may find it interesting. The recurring actors never make the same money that the series regulars make. Um, and that's why being a series regular is usually what, you know, vaulted you up and gave you like a real sustainable career, as opposed to your guest spot or your recurring spot. You know, because I did those and those aren't quite enough to really get you to the place where you really have a career that's going to last for 20, 30, 40 years. So he thought he was the Ted McGinley of that era. Is, is, is yeah, what it sounds like. Um, I think so. Yes. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and I, I did promise one serious question, which is um, if you could go back in time, uh, Robert, if you get into your DeLorean, right, hit 88 miles an hour, go back in time. Um, what words of advice, if any, would you give your younger self? Um, oof. I would just say to, to not be so intense, to not take things so seriously, um, just, to, just to lighten up a little bit. <laughs> you know, the proverbial angry young man, you know, uh, you know, you know, I mean, look, and, and part of it is, you know, young people have hormones, right? And it makes them, you know, more intense, it makes them more passionate, it makes them more emotional, right? So, so a certain part of that is inevitable with young people. And of course, as you get older, that that's part of the point of getting older is you become wiser, right? But that would be the one thing I, I would say. You know, and then when he didn't listen to me, I'd probably have to hit him once or twice, you know, you know, to, to get, make that point. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, uh, the actor is Robert Kerbeck. The book is Ruse, Li Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street, almost at living. But uh, you did live it as well. Yeah. Uh, Robert, uh, I imagine this book is available wherever books are sold. It is. Yeah. And and uh, if you want, people can go to my website, order it right from my website, robertkerbeck.com. Um, you can see the book trailer for Ruse, uh, which is pretty cool because you can kind of get a sense of what the TV show might be like. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff. You can watch the Reconnected film. Um, you know, so it's just a kind of a cool thing, um, robertkerbeck.com. Good. And I assume the uh, the show is still in, is it in, in development uh, still? I mean, is there a, a network or a streaming service for it yet? Or Yeah. So basically the, we have a showrunner, the production company, all of that stuff is done. And now they're... Um, creating what's called the book Bible, which is basically because we kind of mapped out the whole first year. And now it's basically mapping out what future seasons would look like, because believe it or not, you have to kind of have that stuff before you start, because you don't want to get to some point where you're like, oh, wait a second, <laughs> we didn't think about this, you know, what's going to happen, you know, so you, you kind of want to, you know, so I, I, you know, I'm new to all this, so I'm learning it, but um, that's where we are now. So it's, it's pretty far down the road. Yeah, but you know what's so cool is to see how your career has come really so full circle from kind of wanting, you know, this dream to be, to becoming an actor, then, mm. you know, going into this area of corporate spying to support yourself as an actor, um, and then having it really just come full circle where now you're on the other side of, of the camera, you know, you're, you're holding the pen. 
Uh, yeah, and what's funny is, is I was an English major first, yeah. you know, before I was an actor, you know, so it, it, I mean, it's really back to the beginning, you know. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, no, it, it really has been a, a, a true blessing. I'm really grateful and humbled and, and I love to hear from readers. So if anybody, any of your listeners pick up the book, they email me right from my website. I'd love to hear what they had to, you know, what they think. And if they have any ideas who should play me in the uh, TV show, that I want to hear because I don't know the young actors as well as I know the older actors. All right. Well, I will, I will ask my kids because I, uh, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm somewhat clueless, but we've got the name for the episode. You just gave it to me. It's called Back to the Beginning. <laughs> so there we go. Robert, uh, thank you uh, so much for letting me uncork your story. Oh, thank you, Mike. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.